Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. May God's richness runs so deep. And so I'd like us to think about this morning uh, hope. So that's why I needed to make that careful distinction that I said I felt helpless and not hopeless. Because I do have hope this morning. And I hope you have hope. And I hope you hope that your neighbor has hope. Because we need to be people that are full of hope. We want to ask the question, what is it? What does it do? And who needs it? And what basis is there for having any hope at all? First of all, what is, what is hope? Let's talk about this. And we're going to be in Isaiah 11. Um, if if uh, you would like me to say that one more time, there's a, there's a verse we'll look at in Isaiah 11. So we'll go there in just a few moments, Isaiah 11, 1 and following. Uh, but I want to talk about what hope is first. Hope is more than wishing that something might happen. Before Christ came and uh, before the world came to know the Jewish understanding, the Hebrew understanding of what hope was, a lot of times what hope referred to was a kind of wishful thinking. that It's something that we hope for, but we're pretty skeptical that it's not going to happen. We want these things to happen, but they're not going to happen. That's really not what Christian hope is about. So when we say something like, I, you know, I hope the Jayhawks, <laughs> this is personal to me, I hope they win the national championship again this year. Okay, uh, that's very shallow kind of hope. That's not really what we're talking about when we're talking about biblical hope. We mean something different altogether. Christian hope is a firm conviction that stands at the back of everything. It's something that we carry with us through moments when we're on the mountaintop and moments when we're in our deepest valleys. It's a conviction that we have that despite this, all things in the end will be well. Are you with me? This is good. And if you haven't gotten this conviction yet, uh, this morning is a time to really think about that, that in the end, whatever happens between now and then, if you're trusting in Christ, all things will be well. There's a, a famous lady, I think it was Teresa Avila, that said, all things will be well, and all things will be well, and all manner of things will be well. And that's the conviction of the Christian, is that, yes, we go through hardship, we go through difficulty, we go through trials. F.W. Borum, who was an Australian Christian writer, uh, he went to visit a lady in his church that was, uh, that was dying. And uh, she said, Pastor, I think this is the one that's going to get me. And he said, all things will be well. And you know what? He went and he preached her funeral later on, and all things were well. Why? Because she's with Jesus. That's the goal of every life. And so I want you to know that whatever may come when we're trusting in Christ, in the end, when you have hope, you know that all things will be well. It stands at the back of everything. Christian hope holds to at least five general categories. And I want to mention these quickly. So if you're writing, you're going to have to write fast. Number one, Christian hope holds to the fact that God is good. Okay, If we don't have that conviction and we think God is a malevolent ruler of the universe that has a target on our back, we're not going to have hope. And our, if we do have hope, it's not going to be healthy hope because we need to know that God is good. Now, God being good doesn't mean that bad things will never happen in our lives. You understand that, right? That we may go through some difficult things, but still at the back of that, God is good. The second thing is that Christ is our salvation. And that's too, uh, too rich of a statement to completely unpack in this moment. But let me say it this way, that he has overcome death hell and the grave. The hell's claim on us goes both from the satanic place where the enemy has a target on us. He's beaten the devil at the cross. So the devil might still attack you. He still might berate you, but he does not have the victory over you because of Jesus. And also our sins don't have victory over us if we're trusting in Christ. And so Christ is our salvation. The third uh, uh, statement or conviction that helps our hope or is part of our hope is that there is life beyond the grave. There is life beyond the grave and not just a spirit sort of um, nebulous kind of living. It is a life in which at the resurrection we receive transformed bodies. 
Okay, so sometimes we picture things that are weird about heaven, like we're going to be playing harps on clouds and floating around, and that's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is of a new heavens and a new earth in which we live in some kind of spiritual body. And so I hope you know there's reason to be joyful today, even beyond the grave. We can have hope. The fourth thing is that God has good things in store for those who trust in Christ. And this speaks to that same thing, not just life beyond the the grave, but good life and a better life than we have now. Because the life we have now, you may think, I've got it pretty good. But we still live in a sinful world. And because there's sin all around us, sometimes we arm ourselves with some kind of cloak of armor to keep ourselves protected from that. And we live maybe in a little bit of a bubble and we live in a little bit of a fear. But there's going to come a life where sin has been eradicated and we can live in freedom before God and one another. Isn't that wonderful to know? So there are good things in store. The Bible says no eye has seen, no ear has heard, neither has it entered the mind of humanity what God has prepared for those who love him. And then the fifth thing is that God is the guarantor of all of these things. He's the guarantor of our hope. In other words, it is his word on the line. He's signed on the dotted line and says, I will guarantee these things. How good is his promise? Come on, anybody. It's good, isn't it? If anybody can be trusted, it's God that can be trusted. So who needs hope? Who needs hope? Who needs it? Do the animals need hope? I don't intend to talk about how deeply animals think today. Uh, some probably think more than others, but it seems to me that hope is for humans and all humans. People who in God were given purpose to live, we need hope. And we have free will to choose, so we need hope. Hope is something that separates us from the creatures of instinct and shallow thoughts. Because in hope, we believe beyond what we see. You you realize that, that sometimes it looks bleak out there. Sometimes in our own lives, it looks bleak because maybe we don't have anything to look forward to. I'm not one to have a bleak outlook on life, but usually there's a little bit of a Molly Grubbs moment after Christmas and New Year and we start settling into the Alaska winter. Okay, can I confess that to you? I'm not going into deep depression. But what happens to me is that I look forward to the holidays every year. I'm, I'm a man in his 40s, and I still love Christmas. I haven't gotten cynical. But after all of that time is over, it's a little bit of a letdown in some ways. But it's not something that conquers my hope, because we have purpose beyond that moment. And Uh, Hope is something that separates us from those creatures of instinct. In hope, we believe beyond what we see. If we're feeling at a particular moment, if things aren't going well, we can still hang on to hope. And we carry that belief with us, if not in the forefront of our thoughts. It's there helping to guide us in all that we do. And I think it's something every person needs. So what does hope do? Uh, First, I think hope determines the direction of our pursuits. If you hope, you live a certain way. If you don't have hope, you don't live that way. People who have conceded uh, to hopelessness, they don't have strive and purpose in their life anymore. They may do things out of necessity, but what's the point? What's the purpose if there's no hope? If all of this is going to burn out in time, if our lives are going to end at death, What's the point in doing anything? There is no accountability. There's no reason to live for purpose because after we're all gone, there's nobody to remember even our story. That's bleak. That's hopelessness. If you feel hopeless in that statement, that's what hopelessness is about. But when you have hope, you can live with purpose. And uh, we have hope that energizes our efforts. It keeps us in line, too. For example, we have hope of seeing Jesus, don't we? And so I'm going to pursue certain things in life. For me, it was the ministry. Uh, I'm, I'm motivated because I want him to be pleased with me. So I want to I do ministry well. Um, it keeps me from living a life of total selfishness because I know that in the end I have to give an account to him. It's part of the hope. Okay, you, realize, you do realize that, right? That even Christians will have to stand before Jesus and give an account. And so it matters. It matters how we live. We can live with hope, but hope ought to tell us how to live and how not to live. 
Uh, it keeps me from living that life of selfishness because I know I'll be accountable. Those without hope say things like this, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. What's the point in living in any good way, any purposeful way, uh, any purposeful way, live for pleasure because this moment is all we have. That's hopelessness. And I'll tell you, I know a lot of people who've lived this way, and they will tell you the party gets old because it's not infused with hope. Christians of all people have reasons to celebrate, okay? And we can do it with restraint and still have fun. We don't have to get drunk. We don't have to get high. We can have excitement and joy in our lives because we love God. He is the source of all of our joy. Are you with me? And so we have reasons to celebrate. It's the world that needs all those uh, additions and accessories in order to worship because they're trying to find joy in the party, but it can't be found on an on a uh, sustained level. It takes more and more and more. So what hope does is it keeps us in line. That's one of the things. Those without hope say those things. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Those who look beyond beyond that uh, that those kinds of things live for the hope that they have. So what's the basis for hope? What, what basis is there for hope? Uh, and I would suggest to you that true hope is found in the person and acts of the triune God. God is good, and he's acted in our history to demonstrate his goodness. Now, I don't know if you like history or not, but as Christians, we are a historical and historical religion. Do you know that? And what that means is that we believe that God has left his footprints in our history. And because he's left uh, his footprints in our history, we can look back. Furthermore, he is great and he's shown himself strong in saving acts. And he's shown himself to be consistent with everyone, which means that the God who dealt with Abraham is the same God who's going to deal with me today. He's not that kind of fickle father that you never know what kind of mood you're going to find him in. He's the consistent God who is good. Does he have a justice side? He does. Will he discipline his wayward children? He will. But what we can expect is that he is consistent with the record that he's left us in the Bible. And so that's why we read the Bible. It's why we study the Bible is because we want to know what God is like. And we don't just know it from our experience. We can know it from the collective experience of his people. So the Bible is the record of this, and so are the people of God. You and I confirm in our lives the basis of this hope. And so I wanted to talk about that, and I'd like to shift gears into our passage this morning. It leads into that. And I think uh, Christmas is a time of hope. And I, I know what people are going to say uh, about it, but uh, it's a time of hope because it commemorates a time when God fulfilled his promise to us, his people. He made a promise and he fulfilled it. It doesn't matter to me whether Jesus was born on December 25th or not. It wouldn't matter to me if the church of the past chose that date to replace a pagan holiday. Okay, it doesn't matter to me. Those things don't matter to me. Um, we all get bent out of shape, or many people do, about things like this, and it usually comes up every year. And I want to say the first response to that is a day is what you make of it. Okay. If it was a pagan holiday, it may have been a pagan holiday, but for the most part, that's relegated to the past. People make it a secular holiday all the time, but Christians ought to make it a Christian holiday in which it's a holy day. That's what holiday means, holy day. It's a day that's holy unto the Lord. Every day is holy to the Lord, but for whatever reason, this particular date has been chosen, and if you want to worship and remember the promise being fulfilled, this is a great time to do that, you know, we really have to dig way into the archives to find what the former holiday was about, but just about everybody knows what Christmas is about. It's about Jesus being born. So let me justify generally the idea of replacing a pagan holiday with a Christian one, just in case you've thought about this before. Almost every day of the year has been used to celebrate one God or another in some religion. Do you understand what I mean by that? So when we think about it, there's no day you could pick that wasn't at some time a pagan holiday. Okay? So, I mean, the fact that we do church on Sunday, you know that some people worship the sun on this particular day. Hence the name Sunday. Well, we can't. We can't have church on Sunday because it was a day people worshiped the sun. 
Well, what about Monday? Well, that's the day they worship the moon. And Tuesday and Wednesday, Odin's day, Thursday, Thor's day, Friday, Freya's day, and so on. There's different gods for every day. So what we need to do is just decide that as Christians, every day is a day of worship to the Lord. And then this is the other thing, that God owns all the days, and what happens with them depends on what we do with them. The third thing is if by exchanging a Christian holiday for a pagan holiday, we get people to focus on Christ. What's the problem with that? And then the fourth uh, justification I would give is that it's uh, in the area of Christian freedom that's neither commanded nor prohibited to celebrate Christmas. If you want to celebrate Christmas on December 25th, you're free to do it. The Bible doesn't say not to. Okay, And if you don't want to because you've got to hang up, that's, you're free to do that too. Uh, we're not going to divide the church over such things. But if on that day you get drunk or high or commit fornication or uh, you're greedy, those are sins. But you can also do that on the next day, the day after that, and today. You, you understand what I mean? So it's about what we do with those days. But here we're talking about celebrating hope during this time. And when hope comes, it's in our darkest time when hope makes its biggest moves. Uh, it's, um, it fights or militates against discouragement, purposelessness, and um, conceding or giving in to whatever's going on in our world. Let's look at our scriptures and, and take a look at a reason to hope. And I want to describe a little bit of the background to this after we read it. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. A little child will lead them and the cow will feed the bear, will will feed with the bear, sorry. Let's be clear on that. (laughs) The cow will feed with the bear, it changes the meaning otherwise. Uh, Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. A young child will put its hand in the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. That's a wonderful passage that describes our Christmas hope. And you might not think so because this is written 700 years before Jesus comes. Here's a prophecy regarding what Christ is like. And if you know anything about the history of mankind, you know that we weren't created evil. We fell by choosing something in rebellion against God's command. Okay, You understand that we're, we're not as God created us. I, I see all the time or hear on TV or hear people say, you know, why did God make us this way? He didn't make us this way. He made us another way, and we chose to be this way. Okay, that's biblical truth, is that he made us, he made humanity good, and our first parents fell, and then as a result of that fall, we followed in that legacy. Are you with me? And so, sin enters. Out of the mass of humanity. God, of course, we know about Noah, and we we go on down the line a little bit, and after the flood, um, there's a dividing of the nations at Babel, and then God chooses out of that chaotic mess a man named Abraham, and he says, I'm going to bless you, and if you'll trust me, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a blessing to all nations. Through your seed, your descendant, all nations will be blessed. In other words, all nations will come back into the favor of God. So after the fall, people went out of the favor of God. God was angry. People started to distort truth. When God found Abraham, God found a man who would follow him, and he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless the nations through your seed, through your descendants. I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and through your seed, and he's talking about an individual descendant, 
all the nations of the earth will come back into God's favor. Okay, So Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, right? And uh, one of those sons' name is Judah. And God says, uh, even way back in Genesis, the scepter, what is the scepter? It's the ruling rod, will not depart from Judah. It's talking about the royal line going through Judah. And I, I don't have time to trace all this, but out of Judah comes a king named David. And God promises to David, I will build a house out of you. And he sees this as the blessing of Abraham being passed down now through him. And so we start to hear about these references about a son of David, a descendant of David who will always sit upon the throne, who's going to save people from their sins. So after David, you know, the nation that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the founders of, the nation of Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and so the nation of Israel becomes that people. Their spiritual life sometimes looks like some of ours, where it was this up and down thing, sometimes falling into sin. Now, I know that's not God's plan for us. Do you know that? But sometimes people live like that. And this is the way Israel lived. They, they had this roller coaster ride of spirituality in which they sometimes were going after idols and they were being influenced by the nations around them. And so God uh, would send them some kind of a discipline and, and then they would repent and then he would send his favor and he'd deliver them from their oppressors. And this was happening again and again. And by Isaiah's time, the nation is at the most prosperous it has probably been since the time of David. We may be talking about 200 years since David, or 300 approximately. And uh, Isaiah notices something, that people are continuing to act religious, but they're not really following God. They're not really obeying God. And so uh, uh, Isaac says to, excuse me, Isaiah says to the people that these people worship me with their lips. He's prophesying, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so he starts to prophesy that there's going to come a time where you're going to be severely disciplined. And so this begins to happen. But then in the midst of these prophecies of doom, he mixes in messages of hope. Because he's saying to them that though you will be disciplined by God, God is going to see you through and he's going to send someone to be your savior and not your savior only, Israel, but the savior of all of the world. You start to get into passages like Isaiah 7 where it talks about the virgin giving birth to a child. We start to get into chapter 9 where it talks about uh, the, the, the one Emmanuel who will come and the, the government will be upon his shoulders. These Christmas passages we know about. And Isaiah 11, what a beautiful one. You don't tend to think of this at Christmas time, but it's a very Christmas passage because it promises what the Messiah will be like, what this, this one who will come to save people from their sins will be like. And I'd like you to notice some things that at this particular point, Isaiah is prophesying that doom will come upon the nation and it's going to look like that promise has been cut off. Well, folks, listen, sometimes when God promises things, it looks like it's not going to happen. For whatever reason, something comes in that it makes it look like it's going to be an impossibility for God to keep his promise. And at just the right moment, he delivers. Think about the children of Israel when they left Egypt. He sent Moses in to talk to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And most of the people didn't even know Moses was going to do that. Are you with me? And then he goes in there, and finally the people are saying, every time you do this, Moses, it makes things harder for us. So would you just stop? And Moses wouldn't be detoured. And finally, after the last plague, uh, Pharaoh sends them away. And they're leaving, and they get up against the Red Sea. Do you remember this? And Pharaoh decides, once again, he changes his mind. He's going to go get the Israelites and bring them back to Egypt as slaves. And it looks like there's nowhere to go. God says, stand fast and see the salvation of the Lord. And he parts the waters. It looks like there's no way. And then a way appears. That's what this passage is about. It looks like there's no way. When you see a stump, what does a stump look like except a dead tree? Are you with me? I've seen lots of stumps. We have some in our yard now. Cottonwood stumps is the best kind because it means there's not going to be all that stuff floating around in the air, right? But you've seen what that looks like, and it means something is dead. That's what this looks like. And what he's talking about specifically that looks dead is the promise of the line of David. It looks like it's going to be cut off. 
Now, we don't see that yet because there's still about 100 years, maybe 120 years before the fall of Jerusalem where the Babylonians come in. They're going to take the best and the brightest into exile. It's going to look like for a moment that the line of David will be cut off. And if that happens, if all of David's descendants get killed, the messianic promise is dead in the water because God has promised the descendant will come through David. So look at what it says in verse 1. I would like you to notice the hope that's there. It's the hope of a promise in verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. <laughs> this, is, this is beautiful. I, if we could get into it, I'd say there's richness and depth to this. If you can get into this and see what this is talking about and get the picture in your head, because this is poetry. It's amazing to me the prophets write in poetry, but that's what they did. They're writing in Hebrew poetry. If you have a more modern translation, you'll see the lines in offset form. He's, they're writing in poetry. And the thing that he's picturing for us, one of the things that poetry is known for is its richness of metaphor. And something that would convey death and a dead end is a stump. A stump. And you know what he says? Looks like there's a stump there, but there's going to be a shoot that springs up out of the stump of Jesse. Maybe it grows right out of the middle of that stump, straight up. You understand what I mean? That there's a stump that's there, but... A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? We haven't mentioned him yet. That's David's dad. For whatever reason, it's talking about Jesse here, and it's just using uh, poetry to describe this. Out of the stump of Jesse, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Not only is there going to be a shoot that grows up out of this tree that looks dead, but the little branch that begins to grow up out of that is going to begin to bear fruit. So this is the way that hope works in our life. A lot of times we think that there's no way out, and it's bleak, and it's dark. And right now, our nation is a mess. It looks dark. It looks bleak. But I ask you the question, in hope, can God do anything here? Can he restore our fortunes? Not in a financial weird sense. We're not worried about that so much. We want to see wholeness and peace and joy and godliness return to our land. And if not to our land, to the church, to God's people. So there's a promise in this, and the promise is a, a hope that the promise will be fulfilled. He says to us in this, this is the message we ought to hear loud and clear, in your life when it looks like a dead end, if God's involved, it may not be a dead end at all. Are you with me? Isn't that wonderful to know? Because something is going to take place 700 years from here. You're going to go through, Isaiah's prophesying right now in a fairly good time where people are feeling pretty good. Like, they may not be doing good spiritually, but the economics are doing well. Uh, in terms of prosperity, they're doing well. People have all the things that they want to buy. For the most part, people are doing pretty good. And sometimes when that's the case, we don't understand the true condition of our hearts. Are you with me on that? When things are going pretty good, we may not totally know where we're we may not know where we're at. And so that's kind of the condition people are in. But he's prophesying, he's projecting this hope into the future and saying, You're going to go through a time, uh, Judah, you're going to go through a time in which it's going to get very, very dark. And uh, this is written somewhere around the 700s in 586, 587 B.C. They count backwards. So we're talking about 130 years approximately there. The Babylonians are going to come in, and they're going to come in as because God has raised them up to judge his people. They're going to tear down the walls. They're going to tear down the temple. They're going to steal the temple treasures. They're going to carry off the Ark of the Covenant, which we never see again. They're going to do all of the things that will be so discouraging. As Jeremiah writes in Lamentations, he says, he talks about the destruction. He can see him looking at the billows of smoke rising from the city of Jerusalem, and he says, great is your faithfulness, Lord. My soul was torn up by this, but your faithfulness is great. They're new every morning. And he knows that beyond this, there's still hope. Jeremiah knows there's hope so much that before this takes place, God tells him, go buy the field of Anathoth. I don't know if you remember this story, but just be, the Babylonians are camping on that land. And God says, go buy it. Who in their right mind would buy property in the midst of a war that's being occupied by the enemy? 
You know who? Jeremiah, because he believed, he had hope. He believed God was going to return his people despite all appearances. That's the same for us. Now, what uh, Isaiah has done reinforces what Jeremiah is believing, and he's believing in hope that God is going to do something great and return his people to the land. The second thing I want to point out here is this hope is a hope of competence. In verse 2, I'd like you to notice that what this shoot is is a particular individual. Who are we talking about in Isaiah 11, these first verses? Let's say his name together. It's the standard answer in Sunday school, isn't it? Jesus, right? Jesus. Who are we talking about? Jesus. We're talking about Jesus. That that's who this shoot growing up from that dead stump is, is all of a sudden they're going to appear back in the land. You know that the Jewish people kept detailed records of genealogies when they went into captivity. And when they returned, they brought it back with them. So when we get into Matthew We hear the genealogy of Jesus going back from Joseph back to Abraham. Okay, so it's important that we know his genealogy, and we do. He's he's a a shoot that comes up from the stump of Jesse. But then it says something about his competence. Look at verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Okay, so this is talking about competence. Sometimes the the thing that often comes up, and we're talking about um, elections or whatever, is is this person really competent to lead? And there's always debate on that. And in whatever area, we want to know that whoever's going to lead us is competent. One of the things that's happened during the times of Isaiah and following, is that the leaders of Israel were not competent. They were not competent, first of all, spiritually, which was God's primary concern. It often appears that in um, in the Scriptures, when you look at the life of the kings, the thing that he was most concerned about was not whether they were um, you know, great economic advisors or whether they were great military leaders. He said, basically, if you'll follow me, I'll give you victory in all these other areas. They wouldn't. And so they often relied upon the strength of men. They counted their armies and things like that. They got allies that were wicked, and they joined with them. And God wasn't in that. They were incompetent leaders. No leader is 100% competent. I want to tell you that. No leader is 100 If you put your faith in that person, you'll be disappointed. I'm concerned at times where the church has put their confidence we cannot put our confidence solely in a political leader. Folks, you might vote your conscience. You need to vote as a Christian uh, along moral lines and not just economic lines. I believe that's true. But, folks, don't put your complete confidence in a leader that is going to bring back Christian America. And I'm not trying to take sides. If you knew my heart on this, I just am saying it's fine. Vote that way. But don't put your total confidence there. Our confidence has to be in the one who is truly competent. That's Jesus. You understand what I mean? And don't get offended at me politically. I probably agree with you, maybe. But I don't want to, that's not the point. The point is, Jesus is the sole competent leader. And that's the point that Isaiah is trying to make. Look, he will have the Spirit of the Lord rest on him. He will have wisdom and understanding. Okay, those are, those are points of competency. He will have counsel and he will have might in regards to his ability in battle. He's competent. In, a, in regards to his understanding, he's competent. He will have counsel and might. He will have the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Spiritually, he'll be competent. Nobody could be trusted in terms of all of God's prophets. Jesus is in a category of his own, you understand, but one of the roles he fulfilled was prophet. But all the other prophets spoke about him. He was the word. He's competent. And we can trust him completely. When it talks about the fear of the Lord, this to me seems to be in Scripture a shorthand way of saying, like in abbreviated form, all things concerning right relationship with God. That we, have, we, have, we are standing in right relationship with God. You know, when we stand in relationship with God, it is not as equals. He is God, and we are his children. 
Okay, you, you understand what I mean by that? It doesn't mean we're invaluable. It means that when we stay in right relationship with God, we always acknowledge that he is above us and over us and Lord of us. And from him, we, de- we depend for all things. Okay, so he's competent. 3A suggests uh, there's a hope of godliness here. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. This is the thing that's going to consume Jesus. When he came, uh, he comes into a scene that is politically charged. There's a group of people out there, they want to get the Romans out. They're ready to kick the Romans out. There's a group of people that are ready to kick out the priesthood because they're corrupt. And they have all these different agendas. Some are separatists, some are enjoying and indulging in all that Rome has to offer. And it seems that Jesus just kind of skirts around that whole issue and says, I'm about something else. I'm about getting people into right relationship with the Father. And so when we look at what he's like and the hope that is offered in the coming of Jesus is that he's not embroiling himself in a bunch of political stuff, primarily. His thing is to bring the kingdom of God down. And that is political because ultimately that is the kingdom that will supplant all of it. So I want to encourage you with this, that when it comes to godliness, Jesus knows it better. He's trustworthy when he explains what godliness is all about. There's a hope, again, that whatever these other leaders were around in Isaiah's time, they couldn't get people into right relationship with God. Isaiah's complaint was these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts were far away. They go to the temple and they offer their sacrifices, but they're thinking about themselves the whole time. That's the real issue. So he's dealing with things like this. I'd like you to notice in verses 3b, that's the second part of b, or 3 through 5, the hope is the hope of justice. The hope of justice. Notice this. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be on his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. I'd like you to think about this for a moment, that there are a lot of things that are not what they appear. Okay, And so there are people who are fighting causes of justice that sometimes are just and sometimes they're not. Sometimes there's hidden motives that are twisted in. And I'm not referring to anything specifically. I'm talking about the fact that sometimes we don't see clearly what is right and what is wrong. Are you with me? When it's describing Jesus here, it's saying that he's not going to just see with his eyes or hear with his ears. He's going to judge with true righteousness. How many times did he call out the Pharisees who on the exterior looked like they had it all together? What did he say of them? Your whitewashed graves, your mausoleums full of dead men's bones that are well kept by the gardener on the outside, painted Looking nice, but on the inside, it's full of death. Because he didn't just look at external appearances. And he doesn't do that with us either. This ought to strike a chord of concern in us if we're putting on a show. He doesn't look at the exterior of things. He looks right at the heart. You know how Revelation describes him? Having eyes of fire. Eyes of fire that pierce through the exterior and see to the heart of things. He knows what's really there. And when it comes time, he will set all things right. You understand what that means? That we're worried about justice? Yes, there are just causes to fight. But in the end, we have to come to terms with the fact that as long as sin reigns in this world, there will not be complete justice in this world. But when the Prince of Peace comes and he sets things to right, there will be true justice. And he will take into account all the reasons, and he'll throw out all the excuses, and he'll judge accordingly. That's both joyful, a joyful proclamation and a little bit concerning, isn't it? So let us respond to the fact that he, there is hope of true justice. We're not living in, as mere cynics or as jaded Christians. Of all people, we ought to know that we can see the wickedness of sin for what it is, but also rejoice in the fact that we have a Savior who's going to take care of this and see that equity is dealt out in the end. Is this life fair? It's not fair in this life. But when God judges, he's going to take into account everything, and he will judge fairly and justly and rightly. Thank God for that. 
So there is a reason to have great hope. Verses 6 through 9, there's a hope of peace. Look at verses 6 through 9 here. Notice as we read these that these are not naturally things that cuddle up next to each other. These are things that go to war. Okay, The wolf will live with the lamb. Guess who gets the short end of that one? Right? The wolf will... Uh, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. Okay, you have a predator and what's the opposite? The prey, right? Predator and prey in these. Uh, the little child will lead them something something that is small, something, uh, someone who is weak otherwise. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down, uh, their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. And they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. There are some um, who put this into kind of this category of if we preach the gospel, this is what the world will become like. Okay, um, that uh, may be post-millennialism be, would be that, where we preach the gospel enough, the world will get better and better. I don't tend to see that in Scripture. The other view, there's a couple other views. One other view is uh, pre-millennialism, uh, where we believe Christ is going to come back and then he's going to set up a thousand-year reign after that in which things are going to play out, and then the final judgment could be that. Uh, and then the other one is that Christ is going to come back, and the millennium is really refer. This is really referring to what heaven ultimately is going to be like. I want to suggest to you. I'm not ready to draw those distinctions this morning. What I would suggest to you, and I have a I have a, have a view on this, but what I would suggest is that it's Jesus that does it, and that's the point. Are you with me? That if we trust in Jesus ultimately he's going to bring this about. And what he's talking about here is praise and predator who naturally are at each other's throat. They're going to get along and there will be peace. This is poetry. It's not intended to say, I don't think, literally, well, the lion will lay down with the lamb. That might happen, but it's not really the point here. The point, because we don't concern ourselves whether lions and lambs played nice together. We concern ourselves with the fact that things that are naturally fighting would come to terms and live at peace. And that's what Jesus accomplishes. You'll be glad to know um, we're in the last part here, verse 10. And that's the hope of belonging. We have the hope of the promise being fulfilled, the hope of competence in this leader, the hope of godliness in this leader, the hope of justice in this leader, the hope of peace in this leader. And then verse 10, the hope of belonging. Nobody wants to be left out. I don't know about you, but there's a few times growing up, quite a few times where I was picked last to be on a team. And they didn't know my awesome sports skills. So it was their loss. No. <laughs> but if you know what it's like not to belong, and maybe as a Christian, you've been excluded. The Bible talks about that in one of the general epistles, like First Peter or Second Peter, that because you're a Christian, they don't include you. And you might have felt that way a time or two. Well, whatever happens there, and Jesus talks about it, that... Um, I think Peter asked the question, we've given up all to follow you, Lord. He says nobody's given up, uh, you know, family or home or land or even life for my sake will not gain it 30, 60, 100 fold. And I would suggest to you that if you've ever been excluded because you've followed Jesus, you've received more than that in belonging to the church. Folks, I'm not talking about Maranatha. We're part of that. I'm talking about you are part of a global network of believers in Jesus. Network is such a clinical word, isn't it? We're more than that. We're a family. And not only are we a family, but as Joe pointed out a couple weeks ago in the call to worship, we're a family of believers that extend back through history, back to Abraham and all the righteous, back to Noah, back to Seth, all the righteous who followed God. We're a family of believers that belong together. And we have a reunion coming up that's going to be awesome. When we get together, we're going to ask questions about how that really went down and all the details that are not mentioned in Scripture. And we're going to get some great stories. And if it needed to be, it won't need to be, but our faith would have been built. But 
will be seen with our eyes at that point. Here's the point. We're belonging. Right now, you belong. If you look across this room, the interesting thing is the kinds of people that God brought together because we came to him. As we, we draw near to God, we converge towards one another as well. And it brings us into a wonderful community of people, not because they're unlikable, but just because by natural circles, we never would have chosen them. But as we chose God, he chose to put us together into this family. And we get to experience people and a richness that we never would have had otherwise. I was telling somebody just this last week that uh, where I grew up in the Midwest, it was mostly white people. Boring white people everywhere. And uh, I never would have thought as a kid growing up in Kansas that I would have been able to be a pastor or even be a part of a church that's diverse and loves God and can love one another. And I'm telling you, this is a testimony of the world. We belong. Look at verse 10. I don't want to miss out on reading this because this is part of the hope that comes as a result of Christ. In that day, this is a vague way of Isaiah saying that in the day of the Lord, a future day that's coming because of Jesus, in that day, the root of Jesse, once again, that's Jesus, will stand as a banner for the peoples, and nations nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Nations will rally to him. That's what's happened when we came to Jesus. We rallied to him. And what we found as we started looking around is that we have found one another. Part of this beautiful thing. There's a hope of belonging to God. Thank God for that. We belong to a spiritual family. This is uh, known as the body of Christ in Scripture. And when we talk about that, imagine you'd, you've not thought about this. Maybe you have, but that when we gather together, there's a picture of God's presence there. You know, Paul describes it like that each of us are members of one another and that he talks about the different parts of the body, the eye and the hand and the, you know, the ear and the mouth and so on. Um, we're members of one another, and as we reach out to one another, we're God's hands extended to each other too. And so it puts a tangible richness to our Christian walk to be together. Church is more important than we realize. I always thought it was going and listening to a boring sermon, and, and sometimes that happens. But it's so much more than that. It's about being a part of the family of God, ministering to one another, learning, worshiping together. There's a richness of living together and having our story together and being a part of the great epic that is the people of God. That's what we get to be a part of because of the hope he's offered us, hope of belonging. The, the root will be raised up as a banner, stand as a banner. I can think of a verse that relates to that in John. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. Right? Lift it up as a banner. That's what he was, and he draws all nations to himself. And we have the hope, then, of belonging. If you feel alone during this holiday season, you're not alone because Jesus came. You have a friend that's closer than a brother, somebody who's with you all hours of the day and night, into the darkest of times and into the happiest of times. He's there. But he also has brought to you the belonging family of God. And so there's not, a, there's not an isolation. Um, I think Daryl told me about somebody that he knew that they uh, moved to town, and they, they said to him, what do you do? What do you do for friends? Who do you, what do you do in the evenings? He said, sometimes we, we hang out with church people, and we go to church, and we, we have this community around us. And he said, you have that? I think it's wonderful because the, the person said, I don't, they don't know. They go home. It's them. We have so much more, and there's a richness to belonging. John Oswalt says in his commentary on Isaiah, once again, the prophet emphasizes God's dependability. Not only will he keep his promises to his people, he will also keep his promise to Jesse's son, David, and Jesus ultimately Though the hand of God may destroy, which they're going to find judgment that comes later, it will also ultimately be used to redeem. This truth is underlined when we look at the full revelation of the Messiah in Jesus Christ. The way in which he was lifted up is a testimony to God's faithfulness both to punish sins 
and also to make redemption possible. So the nations come streaming to the God who in himself has satisfied his love and his justice and has opened up for us a way into his presence. This is what Christmas tells us. That God is both just and loving. There's a verse of scripture, I think it's, uh, I can't think of a song now, but you'll know it. Uh, Heaven's peace and perfect justice kiss the guilty world in love. Do you realize in the cross of Christ that it's justice being served and it's also love being extended? That God chooses to put on Jesus our sins. This baby didn't stay a baby. He grew up into an adult Savior who would go to the cross and redeem us from our sins. This is the reason there's hope. We don't have to live under the weight and burden of our sins anymore. We don't have to live under the guilt of that anymore. It can be lifted because it's put on Jesus and his death atones for us. There may be more things we could talk about today which deserve our attention, but I wanted to leave you with a couple takeaways. One is it's always in times when our natural sight is most dimmed when hope is most needed. And when it comes, it carries us through times those kinds of times and beyond them. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking like wishing on a star. It's grounded in real things, in words and deeds done by God, spoken in the past and in things in the past which affect our future like Jesus dying on the cross. What happened then affects us now and it will affect us for eternity. Some things which are associated with hope, God's goodness, you know, it's not a characteristic of people who hope to be hoping for bad. We hope for good, right? And that's what God's granted us. We have promises. There's a basis for this hope in the Bible. The basis is found in God and his promises. And there's a waiting that's a part of hope. Hoping uh, often is kept at bay as we, we wait for the goodness that is to come and yet cling to it because of our deep conviction in what God has said and what he's done for us. It's a belief in the event that is yet in the future. And so we wait for it and we expect. We expect it to happen. My mom uh, was notoriously late, and that's probably I learned from her example, I guess. But uh, one thing she'd say, I'm just around the corner. And from our front picture window, you could lean out if you put your face against the glass and see the end of our street. Sometimes I would lean over there waiting for her to come. I had to get to baseball practice. She's running late, but I know she's coming. She said she was. It's not in my timing. It's not in the timing of our baseball coach, her timing. She's coming down the road, and you could see it if you pressed your face against the glass and looked down the road. And that's how I describe hope is sometimes it's standing on our tiptoes, pressing our face against the glass, looking, because we believe the promise is true. It's what God's done for us. Amen. You know, I'm going to invite you to stand with me because I'm done, but... There was a time in my life, I grew up in a Christian home, and my mom made me go to church even when I didn't want to. Years and years of that, sometimes hiding under the covers, thinking she wouldn't be smart enough to know that bulge was me. And not really liking it, but knowing it was true. And I had uh, many many mornings when I woke up with an ache in my heart, an ache of loneliness. As a little kid, there's no reason a little kid should have felt that way, but I did. And the thing that kind of insulated my more positive, I was probably more positive than negative, is the fact that I had a pretty good family around me, and God graced me with that. Otherwise, I don't know where I would have been. But I remember when that ache went away. It was when I was a teenager of 17. I went to a youth conference in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania with my brother. And the speaker there was the lead singer at one time of Petra, if you know anything about Christian rock, Petra. And I was excited to to see this guy speak, and he spoke. And while he was speaking, I don't remember what he said in the message, but I remember the Spirit of God spoke to my heart and said, Luke, if I, if, if I came back tonight, if Jesus came back tonight, you would not be ready for me. And I was getting ready to go into my senior year of high school, and this wicked thought crossed my mind, but Maybe the Spirit helped put it there, not that he is in the business of putting wicked thoughts in mind, but it was wicked because it wasn't complete goodness. This thought came across my mind. I'm never going to see some of these people again because I was always worried about what people thought. 
if I go and act like a Christian at high school, they're going to make fun of me, and I'm going to be way, I'm already in the out crowd, I'd be way out. And so I thought about that a little bit, and the thought was, you're never going to see these people after next year. Why don't you go live it to its fullest before them? And so that was the thought I think the Spirit gave me was, you're not going to see these people again, so what do you have to lose? What should have, what I should have thought was, it's the right thing to do. You should do it, even if you do have to see them for four more years. But I wasn't there. But what I could accept was, you got one more year with these people and you'll never see them again. And it's true. Most of them I've never seen again. So I decide I'm going to go live it to the fullest, and I surrender my life to Christ that day. And I remember going home and opening the Bible, and I read through Matthew, and I read through Mark and Luke, and I was surprised to find that some of those stories are the same. I don't know why that was surprising. But the other thing I noticed was I never woke up with that ache again. That's been 30 years now. Hope. What I realized was the life of Christ came into me when I fully surrendered to him. And with the life came hope. That doesn't mean I haven't had really bad days at times, sad days at times, discouraged. But underneath it all, there's this conviction. All things will be well. All things will be well. All manner of things will be well. That's hope. And that's only ours because Jesus came and brought hope to us. Amen? Let's turn the lights down a little bit. Let's uh, take a few moments to worship the Lord. If you've never met Christ and the hope that he can offer, today I'd like to introduce you to my hope. His name's Jesus. Changes every changed everything. I was a shy kid. I was almost too shy to talk to my parents. God called me to ministry. That tells you he had some kind of place in my life. <laughs> but I want to encourage you, if you've not met him today, you can simply say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. You're what I've been missing in my life. I want to surrender my life to you. If you pray a prayer like that, Christ will come in and he'll be the Lord of your life if you'll surrender to him. It's more than just praying a prayer. It has to be this open invitation for him to come in and to make changes. It has to be the kind of thing that says, I'm going to follow you. Because Jesus died on the cross, but he rose again and he's a living Savior. And he lives to lead us. He lives to intercede for us. He lives to love us. He lives to be in constant relationship with us. And that's ours freely based on the death of his, of uh, Christ. Be merciful, Lord, to me, a sinner. Come and be my Lord and Savior. Be my hope. I surrender to you. You're a Christian already. Maybe you found that hope has been obscured in your life. Some other things have risen up. Maybe a, uh, a worldly way of thinking has crept in and robbed you of hope. Maybe you find yourself jaded and cynical about life, thinking only negative thoughts, not seeing the good in anything. I think God wants to change that. I think today He wants to infuse hope in hearts. And remind you that he is the bringer of hope. He's the shoot that comes up out of the stump. When it looks like there's no way out, he's the God of possibilities. Maybe you're facing something right now that you're saying, this looks like a dead end. Let me proclaim to you Jesus as hope for that situation. Cling to him. Look to him. Receive from him today. He's able. These altars are open. I can't give you these things. God can only give you them. But it comes in response to your confession and faith in him. And he'll give you hope that you need for today. I'd, I'd like to invite you to come to the altar. If you're the leader of a family, you need to lead with hope. Okay? You need to lead with hope. Your kids need to see there's hope in the world. They need to know that there's the security of Jesus Christ that they can count on in a world that's gone completely mad. So I would invite you to come and pray. If not for yourself, pray for them. These altars are open.
just uh, want to challenge you with a practical thought here that um, hope is built by endurance. So we endure through things and we, we trust in God. It takes hope. But as that hope is exercised as a muscle, it can grow. And so it'll take us through harder times than we've ever been before if, if it needs to. And so I would encourage you, let's cling to hope that's only found in Jesus. Amen. And during this holiday season, it'd be wonderful if we could share that hope with others and let them know that, that we, don't need to, we don't need to look at life uh, cynically because Jesus has come and he's died for our sins and he's offered us relationship to the Father and the riches of heaven. And that's uh, because of him. Thank you, Lord. Father, thank you for uh, this word in Isaiah that's so rich, rich beyond what we've unpacked today. We need your help, Lord, to live with a life of hope with such an awesome Savior, such a magnificent and competent Savior, a promise of ages past given to us. And one day as we see you face to face, we'll, we'll know more fully what riches we truly have in you. But thank you, Lord. In the meantime, you're leading us into that like a good shepherd. Pray in Jesus' name you help us. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.